0: Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. So, I'm here with Allison Kreisman, uh, Associate Professor of History at Carnegie Mellon University. And Allison, your specialty is the Reformation, the German Reformation in particular. And I wanted to talk to you today in particular because, in certain circles, Reformation writings about plague are getting a good bit of attention. And Martin Luther wrote this tract that circulated widely in Germany was printed in something like 15 editions and was a response to plague in his own time. I recently recorded that and it's available on our Beatrice Institute podcast fairly long. It took me about 45 minutes to read it out loud. You can just imagine uh, it, it's one of those things where Luther is just, like, he started, you can tell he's sort of getting to the end and then he comes back and he's like, I'm going to write another two pages.
1: That's typical Luther.
0: <laughs> but I think it's particularly interesting to back up a bit and put Luther and the means of dissemination there and what he was, what he was actually doing by writing and publishing this track. You're Recent book is uh, censorship and public order in Reformation Germany, and in that book you're looking at publication, what it means to to print and to have freedom uh, of speech, and and in this new burgeoning economy of of print, and then whether or not censorship is is just. And it strikes me that. In the present time, it can be, you know, difficult to know whom to trust. On the news, we have headlines concerning lies and misinformation, and these are nearly as common as headlines about positive findings and research developments. So to what extent has credibility been a major issue in times of crisis in the past?
1: Well, I think it's always been an issue, and particularly in Luther's time, it probably would have been an even more pressing issue than it is today. You know, in the 16th century, when Luther was writing, the field of journalism as a professional discipline hadn't yet emerged. And so there was really no consensus at that time as to the standards of reporting and how you could recognize and evaluate truth in print. You know, nowadays we trust that, uh, you know, professional journalists are going to be objective in their reporting, you know, that they're only going to report information that they know to be true. But in the 16th century, printers just printed whatever they thought they could sell, And it would be very difficult for a reader to know what that was based upon. Oftentimes, they were simply reporting rumors. Often, uh, news accounts were very sensationalized. And so, you know, news of issues of, of, you know, important public interest, like stories about plague or information about wars, you know, would be very difficult for readers to know that they could trust and and this was a real problem for political authorities at the time because because the the press circulated information that was of dubious quality political authorities recognized that this had the possibility to not only mislead the public but also to to call their own legitimacy into question and, you know, kind of uh, shake public confidence in their political leadership. So it was something that early modern officials tried to very carefully regulate, um, particularly when it came to important issues like news about war or news about plague, you know, A rumor uh, coming out that there was plague in the area could very quickly spark panic. And so um, early modern authorities were very keen to uh, try to stop that kind of rumor mongering, uh, not only in print, but also in the oral culture of the streets.
0: And when you say the press, um, are we talking newspapers or what what are the the means of dissemination? What's the kind of publication structure at the time?
1: yeah you don't have a um a periodical press like newspapers in the way that we would recognize them today until the latter seventeenth century. you know you don't get newspapers that are coming out on a predict- a predictable interval like a weekly paper or a daily paper, uh, as I said, until the the latter 17th century. So in Luther's time, the, the news accounts that would be circulating were usually just these ad hoc broadsheets that would be that would come out whenever a, a printer had information that he thought would be of public interest. So, you know, they, they came out on a very unpredictable sort of interval. And as I said, the basis on which they were reporting was never entirely clear. And so um, the trustworthiness of that information would not have been immediately
0: obvious. Interesting. And it's also interesting that as far as I... could gather uh, Luther's plague letter was essentially a compilation of the types of things that he would say from the pulpit. And he was specifically exercised to address plague from the pulpit. When he heard a rumor in Wittenberg, it was reported that some grave diggers had gotten drunk and were making fun of the corpses that they were supposed to be burying by standing them up and kind of jeering at them. And then on one occasion, they pushed the widow of one of these dead bodies into the grave as a joke. And so, you know, everybody was outraged. Luther was outraged. And this contemporary letter says that that he preached for hours <laughs> on this occasion. So how does that kind of oral dissemination of of news. How would that fit into the kind of ecosystem of information at the time?
1: I think it would probably have been the primary means by which most people uh, got information about issues like plague in the area. I mean, you have to keep in mind that literacy rates were really pretty low at this time. Um, in an urban community, um, like Wittenberg. Wittenberg was not a very large uh, city, but, you know, it was nonetheless a city. Um, there was a university there. The literacy rates in a community like that might have been maybe 30% of the male population, um, with women usually less literate at every social level. Uh, once you moved into the countryside, the literacy rates dropped uh, dramatically down to maybe 3 or 4% of the population. And so most people couldn't have turned to these printed news sheets to get information. They get their information through, you know, word of mouth, the talk in the streets about these kinds of issues. And so in that kind of environment, rumors about plague would have been really pretty explosive uh, or potentially very explosive to the extent that they're circulating false information you know that could be a real challenge for the local authorities and you know a, a story such as you recount would have been you know deeply disturbing uh, uh you know understandably so um for people in Wittenberg and i'm sure that that luther felt that he needed to speak out forcefully uh to try to calm people's fears and and to um you know uh, smooth over some of the distress about these kinds of reports.
0: And in his letter, he has this section that surprised me. It's a section that is stridently urging people not to forsake their home and their family, husbands not to leave their wives, mothers not to leave their children in in time of plague. And when I read it the first time, I thought, He's being sensationalist here. Nobody would do that. But then it turns out that this was this was actually a significant problem in the bubonic plague, which was far worse, more intense than anything we're experiencing now. And so he publishes this so-called open letter. Uh, but it's a letter that doesn't make much sense to me as a letter because it's in response to a fellow clergyman from another city that had inquired from Luther two years prior what to do about the plague. Luther is only now getting around to responding. And so it seems to me that that it's meant not for that particular audience, but for this wider audience. How does something like that work? And what do you think Luther's intentions were in publishing this letter and publishing it at the time he did?
1: Well, Luther, by this point, um, the, that letter came, the, the the publication of his response to this letter comes out, I believe, in 1527. And by that point, you know, Luther was uh, famous all over Europe. And he was um, uh, receiving uh, letters f- from all over Europe uh, asking for advice on a, a variety of matters, and this perhaps account, accounts for why it takes him so long to respond, because he's he's getting inquiries like this from all over the place. But he would often use if he if he felt that the 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 letter that he had received in his response addressed an issue that was of of wider interest to readers. He would often arrange to have his response published. So what he does here with with his response to this particular inquiry is not all that unusual for him. With regards to the actual uh, inquiry that he gets, my understanding is that the clergymen had had queried whether or not it was acceptable for Christians to flee from a deadly plague um, or whether they had an ethical and moral obligation to stay in their communities and help care for the sick and accept God's judgment uh, upon the community. And, you know, Luther deals with his question at some length, but I think the reason why he probably felt that this was an issue that would have been of wider interest to the public is because, unfortunately, in uh, accounts of the plague, beginning with the first major outbreak uh, of the Black Death in the 1340s and then in you know the recurrent outbreaks of plague well into the 18th century, we see over and over again reports, of people um deserting not only their communities but their homes and some in some cases even their loved ones. So this unfortunately was apparently a very real and common problem. In his um introduction to the Decameron, Giovanni Boccaccio uh very vividly recounts um you know stories of people in Florence, who had been, you know, at the height of the plague in the 1340s, who had been abandoned by their loved ones. And, you know, the, these, these sick and dying people are, are very pitifully standing at their windows, calling out to passersby in the street to come in and, and help them. And we see accounts like this from all over in that first initial outbreak of the plague. So it was a very real concern. The bubonic plague at this time was typically um, not merely just bubonic plague, but also pneumonic plague, uh, which meant that it could pass from person to person. And so it was much more contagious. And for that reason, people were in deadly fear. Of this disease. And that's why authorities were so keen to suppress rumors about the plague, because once the word got out that there was plague in the vicinity, people would flee and sometimes abandon their responsibilities at home.
0: And so in the midst of all this, Luther had actually been asked to leave the city, and the idea was to take the University of Wittenberg and to move it to a plague-free area. But he insisted on staying along with several of his fellow clergymen, and he writes in a letter to a friend in 1527 that his house has become a veritable hospital. Yeah. Why? So he invites the entire Bugenhagen family to come live with him. Why? Why? Are there no alternatives?
1: Yeah, um, it was very unusual um, at this time for uh, cities to have a kind of dedicated plague hospital. Even in communities that had a hospital, they typically didn't admit infectious patients into those hospitals. So when the plague broke out in an area, they would set up a kind of temporary plague hospital or a pest house, uh, as they would call it in Germany. And that's where they would um, care for um, those people affected by the plague. And Luther um, was living in the former Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg. Where he had lived as as an Augustinian friar. And you know, there was a lot of space there. It was essentially a dormitory. So it would be a perfect setting for to, to establish one of these temporary plague hospitals.
0: Okay. So I envisioned him with his fairly new wife pregnant with their second child, and I think their son was sick at the at the time. Uh, I envisioned him just inviting more people into the house, imagining my own house, inviting other families in and thinking, oh, my goodness. Uh, But this this makes more sense.
1: Yeah. In better times, he and his wife, Katarina, would um, rent out rooms to students at the local university. As a way to supplement um, his income as a pastor and a university professor, um, so they usually had a lot of boarders living in their home, and uh, you know, taking in the Bugenhagen family and and these people aff- afflicted by the plague probably, you know, would not have been that much of a, a you know a, a stretch on 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 the house's resources.
0: So I recently heard that you could think of the effects of plague as being consistent with a certain notion of secularization in the reformation that as people were not able to congregate together in church that it sacralized the household and you know secularized the church maybe that's more the case today than it was uh, than it was then but hospitals are make us think twice about this kind of simple secularization hypothesis right why is that
1: well healthcare care and and uh, the the care of the needy in general was throughout the, the medieval period often the responsibility of the the roman catholic church in various religious institutions so monastic houses would often serve as um, hospices or hospitals for the care of the sick and the dying and so what we would consider, you know, just basic health care was often a kind of religious obligation and a religious function that the church and its various institutions tended to carry out. Um, but already by the time you get into the into the 15th century, into the latter 15th century, it starts to increasingly come to be seen as a civic obligation. So in larger cities um, where there was enough wealth concentrated. Um, You start to see um, the city governments establishing hospitals and and running these hospitals kind of independently of the Roman Catholic Church. You also start to see, you know, wealthy benefactors establishing um, hospitals uh, in cities or sometimes corporate organizations like trade guilds might establish a civic hospital so healthcare is starting to become a little bit more secularized even before the reformation comes on the scene but in those areas that go protestant the one of the first things that happens is the local city government takes control of the religious institutions that had previously been run By the Roman Catholic Church, and they now have to, they confiscate that wealth and they redirect it for civic purposes. So they reform the the poor laws. But often what they would also do is um, uh, redirect those funds for the maintenance of a hospital and for the provision of health care. So the Reformation kind of um, accelerates that process of, of secularizing health care, but that, that trend was kind of already underway before the Reformation gets going.
0: And then what we see in the time of plague is that that trend kind of reverses itself for a time because those nascent institutions aren't set up for plague and so you get people caring for each other out of charitable religious duty in their own homes and that's part of what Luther's arguing in in the letter is that if you're able to care for your neighbors and for your family it's your charitable duty as a christian to do so
1: yeah you don't start to see you know really strong networks of hospitals in general or or plague houses and you know, regulations regarding quarantine and sanitation ordinances before the middle of the 16th century. So at the time that Luther's writing in the 1520s, these kinds of institutions would have been rare. And I think he mentions that in the letter, that it would be a good idea if uh, you know, every city established hospitals like this. But he says something to the effect that there's very few of these kinds of institutions and therefore neighbor has to care for neighbor. And I I think what Luther is pointing to is a feature of early modern life that was really kind of fundamental to their society. You know, this is a time in which there's not a lot of some of the, the kind of communal resources that we take for granted like the maintenance of a hospital or, you know, a a police force, for example. Um, These kinds of things were kind of left up to the community to organize for itself. So in, in that kind of a situation, this Christian obligation of helping your neighbor, this principle of good neighborliness was a kind of foundational idea. It was a kind of imperative that magistrates and moralists appealed to constantly in this time period. And Luther is is um, reflecting that same basic idea in this letter.
0: Would Luther be on Twitter if he were alive today?
1: I don't think there's any doubt but that Luther would be on Twitter. You know, one of the things that made Luther successful as a reformer was his very savvy ability to use every means of communication that was open to him to get his message across. You know, he um, uh, not only used the power of the printing press um, to get his ideas across, he also wrote hymns, often based on popular folk songs. Many of the hymns that Luther wrote continue to be sung uh, across the Christian world today. His uh, greatest hit is undoubtedly A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is still very widely um, included in Christian hymnals today. But he also, um, because the literacy rate was so low, um, he also used visual propaganda to get his ideas across. Um, So partnering with artists to uh, kind of communicate his sometimes arcane theological ideas in visual forms that were not only very arresting, but easy for even an unlettered person to understand. So he kind of harnessed every form of media that was available to him to get his ideas across. And if Twitter had been around in the 16th century, I'm sure he would have used it.
0: And Instagram and TikTok Oh, yeah. He'd, as be, well. he'd
1: be on all of those.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, moving away from Luther a bit, a recent Wired op-ed declared Twitter and Facebook must not allow Trump's COVID-19 lies. What can debates over lies and censorship in the early years of print culture teach us about controversies over fake news today?
1: Well, I think one thing it can tell us is that this is not a new controversy. You know, since the very origins of the printing press, this has been a debate. Early modern authorities kind of saw the printing press as a double-edged sword, that it was a gift from God in the sense that it helped communicate uh, information, but it was also criticized for presenting information kind of indiscriminately, to an audience that was not really capable of discerning truth from falsehood and so true information and false information fake news if you will uh, was kind of served up you know indiscriminately without really much in a, a of a of a way to identify the truth from the false information. And it was also recognized that this was potentially very destabilizing to the extent that truth and falsehood are kind of presented in this indiscriminate fashion. It can undermine public trust in legitimate sources of information. And, you know, in the early modern period, these kinds of, to the, to the extent that the printing press disseminated what we might call fake news or, you know, um, Cons- conspiracy theories about marginalized groups, for example. So, for example, you know, propagating the, the the slanders of the the Jewish blood libel, for example, or propagating sensationalistic stories about witches in the early modern period. Um, that could actually cost people's lives. So, fake news was a problem back then. Uh, it was recognized as a problem, and it was it was it was dangerous
0: as well and was one response to it censorship absolutely and so i think of the early modern period as kind of the the birthplace of modern notions of of censorship but it's i think the the baseline assumption coming out of the the catholic middle ages is that of course censorship is an important you know plank in the civil society you know, any any just and well-functioning civil society must have censorship. But then the question begins to arise more more broadly, I gather. And what does the conversation look like around censorship in the early 16th century?
1: Yeah, I think there was a broad consensus that the government, and I would include in this, you know, both uh, ecclesiastical uh, officials and, and uh, secular political officials, had not only the right but the duty to police uh, public expression to the extent that it was necessary to um, provide to, to secure public order and public peace and also to police orthodoxy in religious matters and and you would find the same type of consensus in a Catholic as well as a as a Protestant community. Um, Martin Luther himself served as a censor uh, in his capacity as an official of the University of Wittenberg, and he, you know, wrote that he uh, fully recognized the fact that his own writings would be censored and that that was entirely legitimate. His one proviso was that you could not censor the scripture, you know, so the godly truth as he saw it had to be free and unfettered. Uh, but censorship, otherwise, um, would have been, I think, unproblematic for most early modern people, whether they were Protestant or Catholic. It was seen, as I said, as necessary to the public and the religious order of the society.
0: So, one of the back to Luther in, I think, one of the reasons that. Uh, the, his letter has been popping up a good bit on social media. Is that he has some things to say about social distancing that sound like Anthony Fauci might have, you know, said them in the news yesterday, and so that's pretty cool. Uh, but if you dig into the letter, <laughs> he also has some some things to say about plague that are very foreign to us. And uh, I think the most prominent one is that he, along with many of his contemporaries, believed that plague was spread by evil spirits. And then this doesn't mean that it was just a spiritual thing. They understood something of the biological transmission of the disease, but they thought that evil spirits were the were the efficient causes of, of the of the transmission. And so you know what other ways was plague understood at the time in religious terms and not purely what we would recognize as medical terms today?
1: Yeah, early modern people uh, tended to hold simultaneously. Uh, different views about the causes of the plague, and Luther's letter, I think, is a really good reflection of that. So plague could have both supernatural and natural causes. It could have sort of direct causes and more remote or indirect causes. I think most early modern writers, whether theologians or, or medical practitioners, would have all agreed that ultimately all 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 disease is sent by god either as a punishment for our sins or as reflected in the book of job god may uh, grant satan license to afflict humanity to test our faith but ultimately all disease is a reflection of the will of God in some sense or another. And when Luther talks about evil spirits as being the cause of disease, I think that's what he's talking about. He seems to be suggesting that God, for reasons known only to himself, has given the devil a license to afflict us in this fashion. Um, he talks at one point about how the enemy, that is um, the devil, um, has uh, sent poison into the world to cause the plague. So that's that's a, a clear reflection of this kind of supernatural causation of disease generally in the plague in particular. But it was also very widely believed that the plague was caused by some kind of poison. It's some kind of contagion this is centuries before the the germ theory of disease but their thinking about this is actually kind of similar to you know what we would recognize as a germ theory that somehow or another some kind of poison has been released into the world it may be because there was some malalignment of the planets that caused the earth to emit some kind of noxious poisonous vapors but once, but 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 once the air is poisoned and we inhale it, this poison can actually multiply within our bodies, and that's what's making us sick. There's also this notion that uh, the plague can be caused by what we would recognize as purely natural causes, like some kind of environmental contaminants, some pollution. You know unsanitary conditions. I think at one point in the letter He says something like the plague in in wittenberg is caused by filth um, he talks about how Vapors coming from the graves of the people who have died from plague could contaminate the air So he's got a bunch which of we now know to be true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've got you know a bunch of different uh theories of causation in luther's letter But ultimately all of this as far as he's concerned is because God has let the devil um, afflict us in this fashion. It was, I I would have to say, kind of unusual in this period to attribute the plague to the work of the devil or evil spirits or demons. You know, unfortunately, by the time you get in the 16th century, the plague was a familiar visitor. In early modern communities um, and had been ever since the the major outbreak in the uh, 1340s. And so people understood it as a natural disease. Um, And so it was often kind of unusual to um, attribute this disease to demonic activity in the way that, uh, say, a more inexplicable form of illness might be attributed to the devil or increasingly to witches. So Luther's kind of demonic causation of plague is kind of unusual in this period. But it may reflect something about Luther, you know, by this time, by the time you get into the 1520s, or 1527. His thinking is, is taking on an increasingly apocalyptic tone and um, where he sees, and, and uh, he wouldn't have been the only person at this time to have this kind of mindset. There was this sense that the, that the world was headed to the end times and what was happening around them, including the outbreak of the plague, could be seen as one of the afflictions that was going to precede the apocalypse that the devil was more active in the world um, because the world was coming to an end
0: that's you know that that's very interesting because something about the current i think political alignments around COVID 19 are making it such that the american religious communities that i might expect to uh, given apocalyptic reading of the plague are actually are not doing that because they tend to be in areas that are well in some cases you know the Bible Belt has has not been hit as severely as the Northeast and Northwest but I this this is making me want to keep my antennae up for that and and look around the world and see are there apocalyptic responses to this particular plague because in many ways, even though it's not bad as the bubonic plague, it's more momentous in a way because this isn't sort of the 25th wave in 200 years of this plague that we've had. It's the first that that the entire world has experienced.
1: Yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out. You know there are many parts of the world today where um, belief in the demonic and belief in witchcraft is still very, very much alive. And it will be interesting to see if the same kinds of associations that Luther's making here also pop up in some areas of the world that are impacted very acutely by COVID-19.
0: Right. Christianity in the Global South is much more open to these ideas of a spiritual world and spiritual warfare. Yes, Uh, definitely. So a good number of sociologists of religion have been commenting on the future of religion, I think, you know, besides gyms being shut down and schools being shut down, the other major way that that people are experiencing a, a breakdown of community is, is churches being shut. And some uh, sociologists are saying that this is just going to accelerate trends in American and European culture that we're already moving Christian practice from a communal and and public kind of lifestyle commitment to something that is that is private and individualist. Others are saying that it may actually bring about a a renewal of communal association through uh, religious practice uh, because we all now realize how how much we need and miss community. I imagine some similar dynamics were at play in plague times in Reformation Germany. Do you have any sense of of the kind of sociological ramifications of, of plague in, say, Luther's time? What happened in the, say, 1530s once this plague was gone?
1: Yeah, I can't say specifically to what happened in Wittenberg once the um, the plague left, but the the studies that have looked at this the impact of plague in uh, late medieval and early modern um, Europe generally tend to find um, that there's greater investment, um, greater kind of attachment to the church and its institutions after the plague uh, uh, dissipates. You know, precisely, I think, for some of the reasons that you mentioned, people, you know, feel the need for a community, um, and particularly in a society that would often tend to see visitations of the plague as an expression of God's wrath, investment in the church, uh, charitable giving would be perhaps one way to prevent a recurrence of the plague, you know, a a way to appease God's wrath uh, for human sinfulness. It also, I think, you know, to the extent that this shows up in in the historical records, at least in in the writings that some people left behind recounting their own personal experience with the plague, they often speak of uh, feeling a, a greater depend. It made them more aware of their dependence on God and God's mercy, and more aware of their need for God, and so. Rather than causing them to turn away from the church um, and their their spiritual community, um, they seem to be even more invested in it than had been the case, uh, you know, perhaps before the disease um, had affected them. You know, obviously there's going to be a financial impact um, in the early modern period, particularly in communities where the pastor's salary is being paid by the local community. If there's a, uh, you know, very high mortality in that community, um, it's going to make it more difficult for them to actually fund the operations of the church. But in the communities where it's been studied, from what I can see, it it, it over the long term, it seems to make people kind of more um, committed to their church and their spiritual community. And so perhaps we'll see the same thing.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, there is a kind of mini tradition of kind of post-apocalyptic commentary on plague in the 1380s in England that I'm familiar with. And so this is distant enough not to be experiencing whatever kind of immediate repercussions, right? A generation distant from the first bubonic plague in 1348 to 51. But what people there are saying is, you know, you would think if anything were to change people's ways and and bring them to Jesus, it would have been (laughs) it would have been 40 to 60 percent of our population being wiped out. But in fact, nothing has changed. People are, you know, even more corrupt than they were before. This was a common trope in preaching. And it doesn't mean that 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 there was no effect of the plague, but it's an interesting Kind of anti uh, or post climactic way to to approach the effect of plague.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, I've heard some uh, historians speculate that because the Black Death had such a, a massive demographic impact, that it might have actually undermined uh, public confidence in the Church and its teaching. You know, if if the if the Church was really preaching the truth, then why would God let this happen? And so it perhaps is not surprising that in some segment of the population, there would be this cynicism that sets in in the wake of, of such a very massive outbreak as you had in the 14th century. By the time you get into the 16th century, as I mentioned, plague is more familiar. It's, uh, y- you know, it's almost like a seasonal thing, unfortunately, by the 16th century. And it doesn't have the same... Um, demographic impact as the Black Death had had. So I think what happened in the in the 1340s and thereafter is a, is quite a bit different than the early modern experience.
0: So what have you been reading or watching or listening to while you've been shut up at at home that you can recommend to others?
1: We just finished classes uh, this semester, and in my early modern European survey. We started the the semester um, by reading some stories uh, and some passages from Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron, which is set, um, of course, at the height of the of the Black Death in in Florence um, in the in the 1340s. You know, very very vivid accounts of of how that disease ravaged that community. You know, we started reading that at the very beginning of the semester, little knowing that by the end of the semester, we would ourselves be social distancing because of a pandemic. And so I've been thinking a lot about that book. And I actually went back and, and, and read some of the stories. And I think that, um, you know, what I take away from it is that, first of all, social distancing works. Um, and second, um, you know, it's a hopeful message that after this is all over, things aren't going to go back to normal. Life's going to be different, but there will still be, you know, something to celebrate.
0: That's so interesting. Chris Nigren also uh opened one of his classes this semester with with the Decameron and then you know obviously came back to it. Uh, the whole class was new eyes later and he's been and he's been sitting down to read the whole thing recently.
1: Yeah, um it, I mean this, the the stories are entertaining in any sort of context, but given what we're dealing with right now, I mean it really it, it resonates, I think, to a much greater degree. And, you know, just in terms of my, um, you know, reading for fun, I, I just finished a book uh, by Christina Thompson um, called Sea People, which is about how the uh, islands of, of Polynesia were settled and how uh, scholars actually can reconstruct those migrations. Uh, and it's really uh, a, a fascinating Account has absolutely nothing to do with coronavirus or the early modern period, um, but it was really pretty, uh, pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, we need those those things that have yeah. nothing to do with this.
1: And uh, I, I plan to start reading. I haven't started it yet, but I just picked up a copy of Hilary Mantel's um, *The Mirror and the Light*, um, the the last installment of her her uh, trilogy on on uh, Thomas Cromwell. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that because I read the first two novels and uh, enjoyed them very much.
0: Yeah, I heard this one is even longer than the others. Is that right?
1: Yeah, but they, you know, they the others uh, I thought um, were were uh, not only very entertaining but historically very well informed.
0: Yeah, well, Alison Creesman, it's uh, been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for making the time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, .org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our Fellows Program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.